It's good to be with you all this morning. You're going to want to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, and we are going to be concluding our three-week series in Luke chapter 2, where we have been essentially just going through the humble birth of our Lord and Savior. It's been a great thing to hear about how Jesus arrived onto the scene, and this week it's going to be just something a little bit uh, different than what we're used to. So I hope and pray that this will be an encouragement to you all as we go through God's Word together. Does anybody here know who Michael Buffer is? Does that name ring a bell for anyone? Michael Buffer? I'm literally not seeing any hands. How about uh, his, his brother, Bruce? Bruce Buffer? Anybody? Yes? Okay, okay. Got one guy out of like the 200 that are here. That's okay. Um, if, if you guys don't know these names, let me, let me share with you uh, Michael's catchphrase. This will ring a bell for you. Oh, let's get ready to rumble! Does everybody know who that guy is now? Yeah, yeah, Michael and Bruce Buffer are two of the most famous sporting event announcers ever. And they have a combined net worth, and I'm not kidding, I've done the research on this. They have a combined net worth of $400 million. Supposedly each of them gets paid about $100,000 every match or every game, every event that they announce uh, people to. And, And they have these certain copyrights and things of that nature on their catchphrases that they use. So Bruce Buffer's is, it's time, uh, which he uses in a lot of UFC fights. So no doubt they will go down in history as two of the most famous sporting announcers ever. Last week, Joel uh, talked about how he wasn't that much into sports. I'm really into sports so much so that I know who announces sports people. Uh, So a little bit of fire and ice there. But no doubt, as I said, these two will be known as the greatest announcers ever to live within the sports world. However, I do want to challenge, I actually don't think they're that good at their job. I mean, think about it. I mean, it seems to me that whenever that time comes and the cameras are rolling, they don't ever roll just quickly to the athletes. They end up rolling onto Michael and Bruce themselves because it's just so awesome to watch them say those catchphrases. They don't draw attention to those who they are announcing, but rather they end up drawing attention to themselves. And the theatrics of it all, somehow the focus of the event itself at that very particular moment turns to them instead of the ones that they're supposed to be announcing. Well, in our text this morning in Luke chapter 2, we find a different kind of an announcer, an announcer who isn't about drawing the attention on himself, an announcer who who does his job of announcing the most important person in the world, an announcer that puts a spotlight not on himself but rightly on the one who his words are pointing to. So if you will turn with me to Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 21, uh, we will read through verse 35, and we'll be reading uh, this passage together. You can find that on page 857 in those blue pew Bibles if you need the page reference number. But follow along with me as I read. At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came 
in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Let's go to prayer just one more time. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how effective it is. And we pray, God, that it would indeed be effective now. God, I pray that you would use an empty and frail vessel like myself, that you might speak to us this morning by your spirit so that we may look at Jesus and see him clearly. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Usually around this time of year, uh, people will ask what my favorite part of the Christmas story is. And, and I have to tell you the truth. What I just read has become one of the dearest pieces of Scripture within kind of this Advent season. I love this story of Simeon. I don't know why, but it's just really resonated with me in the last couple of years. And I think there's a lot we can learn about Simeon, I, what it means to be faithful and, and to wait upon the Lord and to have a lot of patience. I think there's a lot that we can learn from him as an individual. I think, though, that if we were to do that and Simeon were to hear about it, I think he would be upset with us. It's obvious from the fact that Simeon had one focus in his life, and that was to magnify and to praise the Lord and to proclaim the truth about who Jesus is and why he's come. So this morning, I want to do just that. I want to proclaim Jesus. I want to look at how that ought to change and shape our lives. Often people will look at sermons like these going into this Christmas season hoping for a renewed sense of inspiration and and, and new hope for themselves. But friends, I think it's important as Christians especially to stop looking at ourselves and look at what Simeon did. We need to do the same thing that he did. We need to take a clear look at Jesus. So this morning, I want us to look at three things that I think this text shows us about Jesus and how we should behold him and what we ought to do in light of that. So believe it or not, I don't have a main idea this morning. I know that's surprising to you all, but here are three things that I think this text teaches us about Jesus. So the first thing is Jesus sympathizes with sinners. The second thing is that Jesus comforts his people. And then finally, Jesus is a light in the darkness. And what we're going to be doing is just walking through our text and seeing how those truths come out of our verses this morning. So let's first start uh, with Jesus sympathizes with sinners which we find in verses 21 through 24. The first scene that we find in our story is that Mary and Joseph are taking little 41-day-old, freshly named Jesus to the temple for the time of purification. So we fast-forwarded a little bit from that glorious scene in the manger. He's no longer in the trough. He hasn't stayed there for 41 days, luckily for him. Uh, But he's moved on from that, and now they're going to temple for purification. Well, what is this time? What is this thing, purification? Why did they all need to be purified? As we see here in verse 22, what Mary and Joseph are doing is following the written law of Moses. They are making atoning sacrifices on behalf of themselves and of Jesus. Eight days after Jesus' birth, he was circumcised, just like all of the Jewish boys at that time 
or supposed to be. And then, as prescribed in Leviticus 12, God gave to his people very detailed instructions on what they ought to do once they had a child, especially a first child. And for Mary, she was deemed, after having a child, she was deemed ritually and ceremonially unclean. She was deemed that for 33 days, so she couldn't go to temple, she couldn't be around clean people, otherwise they had to do all sorts of other ceremonial, ceremonial things as well. So, basically, 33 days of isolation after having this baby. And so, this long-awaited time, 33 days, has now come for them to introduce the baby boy to this community of faith that they would belong to. She and Joseph would need to go to the temple, make atoning sacrifices for themselves so that they would now be deemed clean in terms of the Levitical law. And God's instruction to them, as I said earlier, was very detailed in this matter. According to Leviticus 12, they were to bring a year-old lamb or a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Whatever they could bring, that's what they were supposed to bring in regard to purification for having this baby. Whatever they brought would act as atoning or sacrificial sacrifices, which that's redundant. Uh, they would make them clean for them. They would be in the place of them to wipe away the uncleanliness that they had, bringing them back into proper relationship, into proper restoration with God. No longer could they be outside the temple, they could come in because of these sacrifices. In many ways, this moment for Mary and Joseph and Jesus, it, it was really important. This would be the first time they had been to temple in such a long time. I mean, if you think about it, Joseph more than likely had kept him and Mary away from temple because he didn't want questions to be asked about how she was pregnant before they were married. So it would have been a very, very, very long time before they had seen people and gone to temple to worship Yahweh. Not only that, but it would be the first time in a very, very long time that they would have this brand new baby boy with them. I mean, if you think about it, a year ago, almost, I had a little girl in February of 2021, and for like the next seven weeks after we had Sylvia, there were people were, that were coming up to me and just saying, when are we going to get to see the baby? When are we going to get to see Sylvia? She's so cute. You're not. <laughs> and I don't blame them, right? But this is kind of the moment that is anticipated for Joseph and Mary and Jesus. They want to see this baby. They want to see Joseph and Mary. And in the same way that my wife had to wait a few weeks before we could bring her to worship, that's what happened uh, with Joseph and Mary. Anticipation was building for them to be in this community. It would have been exciting, and, and people would have been so unbelievably eager to see them. But they had to make sacrifices first. They had to become ceremonially clean. And so Luke tells us in verse 24 that they bring the turtle doves or the pigeons to be able to go into the temple. Now remember what I said in Leviticus 12, it prescribes that they could either bring a lamb that was a year old, two turtle doves, or two pigeons. But what we see for Mary and Joseph here, they bring the two turtle doves or pigeons. To be honest, I know that this detail that Luke gives here may not seem like much upon initial observation. But what Luke is telling us here in what they brought to, for these atoning sacrifices, what he's explaining to us is that Mary and Joseph, and by association Jesus, were unbelievably and very poor. They couldn't afford a year-old lamb for their sacrifice. And we know this because in the law, as I read these detailed instructions, he made these laws 
so that anybody, whether you were rich or poor, would be able to make these ceremonial sacrifices. So if you couldn't afford a lamb, that's where the turtle doves or the pigeons came in. So I want us to not just gloss over this detail. I want us to let this sink in just for a moment. Think about this. Jesus, the Savior of the world, the second person of the Trinity, came into the world poor. I don't think we should just gloss over this detail that Luke gives us. And I don't know about you all, but I often, when I think about the name Jesus and think about what he might look like and, and, and the vision of him that I have, I don't think about him being poor. I often think about him being nailed to a cross for our sins. I think about his triumphal resurrection. I think about him coming back in judgment with fire in his eyes and, and wearing white and coming back regal as the king that he is. But Luke wants us to know here that Jesus, that same king that I just talked about here, was poor. Do you ever think about this? Before the world was even created, before Jesus ever came to earth as an incarnate baby boy, Jesus, second person of the Trinity, he lacked nothing. He had all the glorious splendor in the Trinity before he was incarnate as a baby here on earth. He lacked nothing. He shared the same glory as the Father and as the Spirit and was the very word that we read about in Genesis 1 that spun the whole world into creation. He had all of the splendor, all of the majesty, and, and then some of the greatest kings of earth. And yet, he came to earth as a lowly baby, a poor child in this world. Friends, I think what Luke is wanting us to see here is twofold. First, I think Luke wants us to see that Jesus loves you a lot. Think about what I just said. The second person of the Trinity, the most perfect relationship, the most perfect dwelling place that there was, decided that in love he would come in lowly human state, emptying himself, so that he might let you know that you are loved by him. He came here in this lowly and poor state, just so that you would be reconciled back to God. Paul in 2 Corinthians 8 tells the readers there that it was by Jesus' love and by his grace that Jesus became poor so that we might know the riches and the glories of God's love for us. Friends, think about this. The same love that spilled out for you at the cross, the one that showed you that it was finished, that the sacrifice had been made, that same love is now here incarnating as a meek and mild baby. Jesus loves you from the very beginning of his incarnate life all the way to the very end and is loving you now sitting at the right hand of the Father. No matter his state, he wanted to let you know that he loves you. He loves you, he loves you, he loves you. And he showed you that by becoming the poorest of the poor. Secondly, Luke is wanting you to know that Jesus sympathizes and understands and feels for the lowliest and most sinful of people especially needy, needy sinners like ourselves. Think about this. Jesus' life was not easy. He went and lived through really difficult circumstances. The cultural context that he was in was not easy. And on top of that, he grew up in poorness and in poverty. And he didn't have running water or AC or, or heat or anything like that. He just came into the world as this lowly and poor babe. But Jesus knows, friends, what it's like to be tempted in every way just as we have. He faced the same struggles, the same 
hard, difficult things in life that we do, and yet he did not sin. And yet, as the writer of Hebrews tells us, he did this without sin, and he sympathizes with us. He drew near to us in becoming this poor and lowly babe. Jesus became a a meek and lowly babe because he is a sympathetic Savior. He knows what it's like to walk a mile and then some in our shoes. Friends, Jesus is not far removed from the struggles that you and I face each day. And he's not far from you whenever you fight against him. As we see here, Jesus enters into the fray of humanity without reservation and comes ready to fulfill all that was prophesied of him. Even in the sacrifice that was being made, if you think about it, the sacrifice was being made on behalf of him. And he had no sin, but he was taking on the place of sinful flesh for us. He loves you so, so much. And that's what Luke's trying to get at here. I think the second thing that we see in verses 25 through 32 is that Jesus comforts his people. Jesus comforts his people. When we're introduced to Simeon in verses 25 through 35, we probably read this account with a little bit of, you know, are you sure about this guy? Like, I mean, think about it. If, especially for younger parents, right? If you bring in your child and you come into this church and, and you're brand new and you don't know everybody and some guy runs up to you and takes your baby up in his arms and, and, and starts worshiping that baby, you'd be like, whoa, hold on here a moment, guy. You're, you're a little odd. But Luke assures us that Simeon is not this way. Luke is, is a righteous and a devout man, so there was nothing to worry about him taking up this baby in his arms, I, however odd it may look. But Luke assures us it's okay because Simeon is a very special person. He's righteous. He's devout, according to Luke. But most of all, what we find about Simeon is that he was waiting. He was waiting. He, as an Israelite, a Jewish person, a person that followed Yahweh, the one true God, has been waiting. Since Genesis 3, the collective people of God, just like Simeon, they have been waiting and waiting for the Messiah. They've been waiting for the Lord's Christ, the one who would finally bring God's rule and God's reign to earth against all of these earthly kingdoms. And year after year, generation after generation, time after time, God's people are let down. They wait, and then they wait some more. And disappointment after disappointment, no Messiah. As a matter of fact, it seems that for the people of God, instead of having the Lord's Christ finding him and and him bringing that earthly rule and reign, instead of that happening, it it seems to be that they're just getting conquered over and over and over again. First, it's the Babylonians and the Assyrians and the Egyptians and so on and so forth. They just keep getting pummeled and pummeled and pummeled, and they keep waiting and waiting and waiting. And yet, no answer. And yet, despite all that waiting, despite all that silence, we find Simeon still waiting for the consolation of his people. Now, I realize that this word, this idea, consolation, is is a different word. It's kind of a, in in maybe lesser terms, is a King James word, consolation. Uh, My mind often goes to, whenever I hear this word, I think about uh, the fifth place game that I had to play all the time uh, in high school for basketball tournaments because my team wasn't good enough to get to the third or first place game. But 
That's not what this is. This isn't a consolation prize or anything like that. I think the better word that is rendered here in the Greek is, is comfort. Comfort. Simeon was waiting for the consolation, the comfort of his people. And it's not as if Simeon was just waiting without any sort of hope. It, apparently, according to Luke, it was promised, by Simeon, promised to Simeon by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death until he saw the Lord's Christ. So, if you think about it, who knows when he received this promise, day after day, he goes in the temple to worship Yahweh, to wait for this Messiah, to finally see the Lord's Christ. Day after day, week after week, year after year, Simeon goes to the temple asking and praying that God would make good on this promise that he made to him by the Holy Spirit. And day after day, year after year, no Messiah for Simeon. The situation seems hopeless in his life. Will Simeon, will the people of God ever find their consolation? Will they ever find their comfort? Brothers and sisters, what do you do when you feel like you have no hope? What do you do when you feel like your prayers are not being heard and you're left in waiting silence before God? Do you still continue to come to the Lord like Simeon? Do you still continue to pray without ceasing as the Apostle Paul encourages us? Do you still pray that the Lord's will be done on earth just as Jesus instructed us? What do you do when you find yourself in a season of waiting? I think there's a lot we can learn from Simeon. But something tells me that the faithfulness of Simeon to the Lord is something we ought to strive for. I'd love for myself in year after year, time after time, that I would have that same kind of faithfulness of showing up, of being there, ready to worship the Lord. Would you be described in the same way? Would people, if I were to ask them what you're like, would you be described as, as faithful? I'm sure that we can all think of those certain Christians that we like and that we admire and that we want to be like. And I think many of those people that we think about, for me, I think of people like Martin Lloyd-Jones, Charles Spurgeon, those kind of people, I think one of the main characteristics that they're known by is faithfulness. Normal, everyday, showing up faithfulness. And it's in that normal faithfulness that we find God finally answering the prayers of Simeon. Because ultimately, God is the most faithful one who keeps all of his promises. Simeon did not have to wait without hope. He knew that the Lord, the Yahweh of the universe, would answer his prayer because God is the most faithful one. Any shadow of faithfulness that Simeon had was not of himself, but the grace of the Lord. So he knew because of how faithful the Lord was that he could wait upon him and that he would have an answer eventually. God always keeps his promises. God will comfort his people. This is why we find Simeon coming back to temple again and again. And perhaps he came into temple, like maybe some of us here today, he came into that temple with doubts in his mind about whether or not this was actually going to happen. But he rested, not upon his own faithfulness, not upon his own striving to make good on that promise, but instead he rested on God. He knew that God would hear his prayer. I 
think this is why verses 27 through 32 are so sweet. This promise to Simeon by the Holy Spirit, it finds its yes and amen in Jesus. Do you see that with me in the text? All of a sudden, this thing that he's been waiting for for so long finally finds its yes, Simeon. You will have consolation. Yes, Simeon, I have comfort for you. And you know how I'm going to answer that? Not just by saying, hey, it's going to be okay. I'm going to give you Jesus himself. Friends, we need that this morning, don't we? We need to look at the face of Jesus and know that we can have comfort. We can have peace in the midst of our life because Jesus is the faithful one that showed up for us. Amen? It's as if Simeon, with tears in his eyes, praises the Lord, finally, my wait has been worth it. I can depart in peace because I have seen the one who will bring salvation to me and to my people. Not just to me and to my people, but to all the peoples of the earth. God keeps his promises. He looks at Jesus and says, yes, amen. Indeed, it is in the person and work of Jesus that every Christian, not just Simeon, can have hope. We can take great comfort in knowing that God does hear and he does answer our prayers. For in the darkest state of our sin, the Lord sent Jesus to be the Savior of our lives. Every day, every minute, friends, of our lives matters to God. And he sent his son Jesus, as we read here, he sent his son Jesus to remind you that yes, he loves you. Yes, he will comfort you if you will only behold his son Jesus Christ. My friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, and I were to ask you, what do you do whenever you have no hope? Whenever maybe you find yourself in that waiting silence? What gives you comfort? What gives you hope during those times? What gives you hope about life after death? I realize that there's a viewpoint that says, oh, we just die and we'll be buried in the dirt and worms will consume us and, and that's it. We're only given the days that we're given. I know people will say that there's no such thing as life after death. But it seems questionable to me, that assumption based upon literally centuries and centuries of people trying to figure out what happens to human bodies after life after death. So even though you may verbally say, well, I don't believe that there is such a thing, why is it that the history of man seems to indicate otherwise? I think you need to grapple with that. I think you need to wrestle with centuries of history of people trying to figure that out. My friend, if you're here today, and by chance maybe a friend or family member brought you, I want you to talk to the person afterwards and talk about why maybe they have hope in a life after death and why they have hope in the person of Jesus Christ for that. Friend, you can have that hope this morning, one that doesn't cause you to doubt about what might happen to you after you take your final earthly breath. As we read in the Bible, there are two outcomes. You will live after you die. You will either live in eternal splendor with our Savior and Lord, or you'll live in eternal torment away from our God. Wrestle with that this morning. Come and talk to me. I'd love to talk to you more about what it might look like for you to trust in the same Jesus that Simeon did that gave him such hope, not just in this life, but in the next as well. 
If you don't mind, really quickly, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. And forgive me, I didn't give uh, this page number to uh, Missy whenever we were doing this, but Isaiah chapter 40. I want to read the first couple of verses for the, uh, out of Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to her. And let her know that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. Friends, God spoke these words to the prophet Isaiah over 700 years before Jesus was born. And in our text this morning, we find that Simeon is the evidence that God does keep his promise to comfort his people. And he will comfort them through Jesus Christ. And it is in faith in Jesus that we too can also find comfort in our everyday lives. Read with me in verses 32 through 35 of Luke chapter 2. Excuse me, 33 through 35. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Actually, you know what? I do want to go to 32. Verse 32. For my eyes have seen your, your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. And for glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts of, from many hearts may be revealed. I think the last thing that we learn in our text this morning is that Jesus is a light in the darkness. Jesus is a light in the darkness. Given what was just said, the reaction of Mary and Joseph, it's not surprising. I mean, again, think about it, parents. If you had somebody take up your baby boy and say all these crazy things, you'd be like, ah, yeah, I'm marveling at that. Maybe in, in marvelous uh, wonder or maybe in marvelous skepticism, right? But given what was just said, Mary and Joseph marvel at it. The Lord comforts his people and and baby Jesus is a verification of that. But then all of a sudden, it's like the tone gets switched in verse 33. Simeon, Simeon gets very serious. And he tells Mary in verse 34 and 35, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. What does this mean? Why couldn't Simeon just give us more joyful news like he did in the verses above that, that Jesus is going to be a light for revelation to the Gentiles? Why, why couldn't he just left it there? Well, 
I think it's because in light of those verses above that Simeon says these things here in verses 34 and 35. While, yes, Jesus is a light to the Gentiles and in glory for the people of Israel, I think Simeon is assuming here that humans will still be humans and sinners will continue to sin. While, yes, the light has dawned in Jesus Christ, we also know that people love the darkness. Jesus spoke of this himself in in John chapter 3 when he said, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. I think what Jesus is getting at here in John chapter 3 is exactly what Simeon prophesies here in Luke chapter 2. Jesus is not just simply a hopeful, bright light that men can look to for hope. He's so much more than that. He is the light that reveals the very heart of all mankind. And friends, whenever Jesus shows us our hearts, whenever he illuminates to us himself and we see our hearts, I think what we find is not that pretty. Indeed, what we find in our hearts is is not a wellspring of goodness, of love and charity. Rather, what we find that that light exposes is our hearts are filled with all sorts of evil, all sorts of selfishness, all sorts of deception. And even with our terrible hearts set on rebellion against the Lord, Christ enters into this world for us. He enters into the world for this very reason, to be the light that does expose who we really are, but to also change our hearts from the inside out, to expose to us that we are sinful creatures in need of saving. A popular idea that is thrown around right now is that humans, in their essence, inherently, and in their nature, are good. That if we just looked inside of ourselves, and we believe enough in ourselves, we will find this good and great thing about us, and we'll be able to do amazing things. That's pretty much Disney movies in a nutshell. Then I want to argue, while that does sound inspiring and hopeful, it sure does not seem like that's the reality of, of humankind in general. I think this is what Simeon was getting at here when he was talking about that Jesus would cause the rise and fall of many. What we find is that Jesus is the exposing light, telling us the truth about ourselves. And how we respond to the truth and to the light of Jesus is the most important thing about us. Will Jesus be someone we oppose or someone we fall down in humble submission to? Will he be the reason that you can stand before God, or will he be the reason that you turn away in proud arrogance, which will cause your falling when he returns? This baby that Simeon holds is the same king who will return in judgment to judge the hearts of man, the one that we sang about that would come with fire in his eyes and come in glory. Though Mary's soul will be pierced when she sees this baby who she raised, who she loved, who she nurtured, be crucified by the nails on the cross, while her soul will be pierced by that, the souls of the rest of mankind, when confronted with this crucified Jesus, 
will be pierced whenever we see him return as king and come back for his people. So the question is, will we be pierced by joy or will we be pierced by great fear and sorrow? As we conclude, this time of year reminds us so much of the significance of the arrival of our gracious and loving Savior. And it's good and it's right for us to fix our thoughts and minds on Jesus in this time. It's a good and right thing. I think that's why Simeon was able to sustain so long in his waiting. But friends, so many times I think we get distracted in all of the pomp and circumstance of Christmas and forget to just simply look at Jesus and to look at who he is. Friends, I pray that Christmas this year would remind us that Jesus sympathizes with us in our sin, and yet he stands ready to forgive those who come to him in faith. Christmas reminds us that we can have hope, especially whenever things seem so dark and so distressful. But this season, this Christmas season, also ought to remind us that this baby who arrived in lowly fashion will once again come in glory and splendor to judge how each of us and how each of our hearts respond to him as an exposing light. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for Christ because ultimately in him we find every promise of yours fulfilled. We find it's yes and amen. And so God, this morning, we pray that as we take the Lord's Supper this morning, that we would be reminded of the great life that you lived and the sacrifice that you offered. That as we partake of these symbols of these elements, that we would know that your yes and amen is found in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. God, help us to believe that and help us now to take this supper in a manner that is worthy of you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.